Hello and welcome to this podcast about Child Sexual Assault Pilot or Child Sexual Offence Evidence Program Scheme. My name is Helen Shaw and I'm a solicitor in Legal Aid's Indictable Team 2 at Sydney Head Office. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I work and live and I'd like to welcome any Indigenous colleagues who are listening to this podcast. This topic can be a little bit dry because it is very legislation based. However, it's important to know the difference between running a trial which is not in the scheme and running a trial which is because there are procedural practical differences. I recommend that you have a look at the Criminal Procedure Act Schedule 2 Part 29. That's Criminal Procedure Act 1986 Schedule 2 Part 29 because that is where the practices and procedures are set out and they form the practice note for Sydney District Court matters. Practice Note 11 is the District Court Criminal Practice Note for the Downing Centre and it is something that you need to be familiar with if you are practising in these matters. So which matters are to be referred to the pilot or the scheme? There are a whole list of prescribed sexual offences in Section 3 of the Criminal Procedure Act and they include what you would usually think, you know, various forms of sexual touching, sexual assault, all of that, but they also include failure to reduce or remove risk of child becoming a victim of child abuse, female genital mutilation or removing a person from the state for the purpose of genital mutilation and section 91A for example procuring somebody for prostitution is also a prescribed sexual offence. So you need to look when you get the charge sheets from the prosecution or the police you need to see whether your matter would fall within the scheme. The pilot started in Sydney on the 4th of April 2016 and it was a three-year pilot originally. It has been extended as it's now 28th of August 2020 and it's still going and we can expect that it will be rolled out more broadly over time. The other place that this scheme is run is Newcastle. The scheme introduced two significant differences to the way in which sexual assault trials are run or were run. Those two introductions were pre-recorded evidence and cross-examination and re-examination of child complainants and witnesses in child sexual assault cases. So any witness who is a child of under 16 at the time of committal is also to give their evidence in the same way as a child complainant. 
and that was a significant change within the initial first three years. And the other change is the introduction of witness intermediaries, which you'll notice in the legislation in the Criminal Procedure Act is referred to as a children's champion. The word children's champion is a term that the politicians used, but it is not the term that is used in court. So we use witness intermediaries. I'll get to more about what a witness intermediary does in a short time. So when you look at part 29 of the Criminal Procedure Act, um, Schedule 2, a child is a child who is under 18 and a witness means a child who is either a complainant in the proceedings or a prosecution witness in the proceedings. And there's definitions uh, within Clause 82. Again, the language is very important because all through the Criminal Procedure Act, Schedule 2, Part 29, it's children's champion, children's champion. But in court, you will be using witness intermediaries. Witness intermediaries must be tertiary qualified as either speech pathologists, psychologists, social workers, teachers or occupational therapists, or have training with other skills and experience prescribed by Clause 89, Subsection 2. They're not meant to be considered experts for these proceedings, but they are considered experts in child communication and they are trained and accredited by victim services. And there is a panel of these trained and qualified and accredited people who are drawn upon to assist the court. They are officers of the court. They are impartial. They are not meant to interpret or translate or change the evidence of the child witness. They are meant to facilitate communication and the whole idea behind this, or one of the ideas behind this when this went to Parliament was to try to allow children to give their best evidence, to allow children to feel safe and secure and comfortable in answering questions by lawyers. Witness intermediaries are self-employed and they can accept or reject a brief. They are paid for their assessments and they are paid a set rate for reports. And their paramount duty is to the court and their role is to support effective communication. And if you're interested, there is a witness intermediary procedural guidance manual the latest one that I could find was updated in April 2019 and you can go on to the New South Wales government website. The, there's um, Victim Services has the manual which you can print out to have a look at what the role is and what a report may look like and entail.
So the role of witness intermediaries is set out in Clause 88 of Schedule 2, Part 29, and they are appointed for a witness to communicate and explain. They're meant to explain to the witness some of the questions that are put to the witness, if the witness seems to need having explanation given. And they may at times advise counsel who is questioning the child to rephrase the question. The witness intermediary has a duty to be impartial and to attempt to allow the child to give their best evidence. But they are not meant to be a second interpreter. They're not meant to be a second interviewer. They're not an advocate of the child and that's why the term champion is so problematic. They're not an expert witness and they should not be asked to give an expert's opinion on the complainant's reliability or competence. They're not to ask questions at court. When you see the witness intermediary in practice in the courtroom, they will actually be in the remote room with the child witness, sitting beside or during COVID, pandemic situations, socially distanced. And they may assist with um, seeing if the child needs a break at certain times, looking for cues of emotional distress, those sorts of things. And they might at times interject to seek that the child has a break. Witness intermediaries are required to prepare a report which is sent to the court and provided to both defence and prosecution lawyers prior to the questioning of the child. And the procedural guidance manual that I mentioned recommends including general observations about the child, their attention and listening skills, their auditory comprehension, understanding of spoken language, their spoken expression, their reading and writing ability, their nonverbal communication, and other relevant information, which may include things to do with how the child uses language uh, and also whether the child will benefit from breaks um, or aids like a stress ball and one case I saw had a support animal for the child. The report will include recommended question styles and advice for the lawyers and the lawyers are meant to follow these guides and each child will have different recommendations. Some will be very similar and it will be based on obviously based on child's age, child's specific abilities and 
communication issues with that child. And keeping in mind, by child, there's a very large range of ages from below five to someone being 15, 16, sometimes 17 under certain circumstances. So sometimes the lawyers might be told to ask a certain type of question or not to use particular words or particular language. For example, avoid tag questions rather than saying it was raining, wasn't it? The advice is to say, was it raining? And the report writer is meant to give a rationale for the recommendation and the recommendation not to ask tag questions was because the child may give an unreliable response to tag questions. There might be other specific recommendations for a particular witness um, as to where the witness intermediary will stand or sit during the child's evidence and how the witness intermediary and other people in court should be referred to, example by first name, um, how the witness intermediary will intervene if a communication issue arises. Some children may be best to give evidence in the afternoon for a particular reason or the morning. How to schedule breaks, how frequent the breaks should be. And whether wigs and gowns should be worn. It might be off-putting or intimidating for some children. So there will be all these kinds of recommendations specific to a witness set out in the witness intermediary report. And when you go to court and the witness intermediary has served their report, the witness intermediary is sworn or affirmed and they give their recommendations in the witness box. And so those are recorded verbally. Often it's reading out their recommendations from their report. And if the lawyers wish to ask them any questions, they can. And that is called a ground rules hearing. They're ground rules for the lawyers. Now, if you look at practice note 11 for Sydney District Court, there are the matters at Sydney District Court are committed to a Monday morning for callover before Judge Trail or Judge Sheed. And counsel and solicitor are expected to attend, but during the COVID pandemic, it's tended to be via video link. And this means from a grants perspective and from a funding perspective, we really need to brief these matters early because there is not much time between leaving the local court that is being committed for trial and your first appearance in the district court. Now, at your first call over in the district court, you're going to have to know the issues in the case. Counsel is going to have to be across the brief and a list of directions will be given with deadlines set for the filing of 
documents. The Crown may have already served their indictment, filed their indictment in time for that first district court call over. And if that's the case, your client may even be arraigned on that date. And the defence response to notice of prosecution case will have to be filed, as will, prior to that of course, the Crown's notice of prosecution case. So you get these orders to file documents. It happens much quicker than other trials which you may have uh, at arraignment, you may have four, five, six months time before the trial's going to commence. With these child sexual assault matters in Sydney and Newcastle, the trials are going to come on much quicker, or necessarily the first part of the trial will come across much quicker than other trials of other nature. So be prepared when you go to that first mention or call over in the district court, be prepared to have dates set down for pre-recorded cross-examination as well as the balance of the trial. I'll get to the practicalities a bit further on. From a grants perspective as well, counsel who cross-examines the child in the pre-recorded cross-examination should remain in the matter for the rest of the trial. And the practice note refers to the legislation, which again is Schedule 2, Part 29 of the Criminal Procedure Act. Now Clause 84 of Part 29 of Schedule 2 deals with pre-recorded evidence hearing and it applies to a person who is less than 16 years of age when the accused person was committed for trial. Okay, so a witness who is less than 16 when the accused person was committed for trial must be given a hearing under Clause 85, which is a pre-recorded evidence hearing in accordance with that clause. If a person is more than 16 years of age when the accused was committed, then the court may order or of its own motion or by application of a party to the proceedings may order that that witness, who is more than 16 at the time of the committal of the accused, give evidence by way of pre-recorded evidence hearing. The court may make an order if it's satisfied that it's in, appropriate in the interests of justice to do so, so that's the test. The wishes and circumstances of the witness and the availability of court and other facilities necessary for a pre-recorded evidence hearing to take place are the primary factors taken into account in determining whether to make an order. The court also needs to consider sufficient preparation time for both parties and the continuity and availability of counsel at both pre-recorded evidence hearing and 
the rest of the trial, and by the rest of the trial I mean the part which is before the jury with live witnesses, not pre-recorded witnesses. And a person who has an order made in respect to them under the subsection 2 is entitled to give evidence in accordance with that order even if the person becomes an adult, that is, even if they've now turned 18. So, in practice, how does the pre-recording work? Look at clause 85. Pre-recorded evidence hearing is to be held as soon as practicable after the date listed for the accused person's first appearance in the district court, but not before the prosecution has made the pre-trial disclosure required by section 141. The child witness may give evidence in chief. In practice though, what I've found is that there is less or not much evidence in chief because the JERT interview is considered the bulk of or most of the evidence in chief. However, there are cases where the Crown Prosecutor may ask a number of more questions and tender documents through the pre-recorded hearing. The JERT interview, which the child did at the police station, is played in evidence in chief to the jury at trial. The pre-recorded evidence is done in the absence of the jury if there is going to be a trial by jury. So the pre-recorded cross-examination is done in the absence of the jury. The child witness and the witness intermediary are in a remote room and it is video recorded. And when, they give, when the child gives evidence, they are not to see the accused person. So the accused person will be in court, or some people might be doing it by video link, but they're in a place where they cannot be seen by the witness being cross-examined or being questioned. So in my experience, the focus of the pre-recorded hearings has been the cross-examination, but that's not to say that there can't also be evidence in chief and there may of course be some re-examination. The pre-recorded hearing, and this is very important to remember, is actually the first day of the trial. So the trial has commenced with that pre-recorded hearing. And by the time you get to the jury, the second part, you'll have to have edited out the DVD and the transcript of the pre-recorded hearing. For example, there might be parts which become inadmissible or there might be parts where the judge is explaining some things to the witness which are not necessary for the jury to hear. So there needs to be editing of DVD and transcript prior to the next stage which is before the jury. And before the jury, those edited DVDs, edited jerk if edits are made, and edited pre-recorded evidence are played to the jury. 
This is very important. It's very important to know that leave is required to bring a witness to court to give further evidence. Leave is required to further cross-examine a child witness. And this is clause 87. You can only do this by application to the court for leave and that requires a notice of motion and an affidavit in support. An example where this was necessary was when the police interviewed the child in one of my matters further after the pre-recorded cross-examination and they asked the child questions and they also served statements from a relative of the child which went to the heart of the defence being knowledge of age and that material was not foreseeable and that material of course had never been served before so we needed to apply I needed to do an affidavit in support of a notice of motion to apply to cross-examine that child again on this fresh evidence. So it is really important to think thoroughly about subpoenas, think thoroughly about what you want to cross-examine the child on in light of the entire brief of evidence before you begin to cross-examine the child the first time. Because if you merely forget something when you had the opportunity to do it, you may not be able to get leave to apply to cross-examine again. And usually further evidence should be done by way of further pre-recording unless the court directs otherwise. So it's very important for counsel and solicitor in these matters to be prepared and across the brief and the issues and the client's instructions very early on. It should go without saying but you don't want to be in a position where you need to seek leave and you don't get it and it ends up being something that should have been done the first time. Now there has been discussion, but I have not seen this in practice, of police identifying the need for a witness intermediary and making a written request while the person, while the child is at the police station and prior to interviewing the child. I haven't seen that happen, but that's not to say that it hasn't happened or isn't happening. But when these matters first came, when this pilot first started, there was discussion about having police engage the witness intermediary from the beginning and the idea would be that perhaps by the time it got to court, if the accused is pleading not guilty, to have that same witness intermediary be the person that prepares the report for the court and sits in with the child when they are being cross-examined. The idea of having the witness intermediary at the police station is again an idea to help facilitate communication, not to ask the child investigative questions, 
but to assist the child to give their best evidence and to assist the police by detailing the communication needs or any particular language issues or issues that that child may have in understanding questions asked by adults or by police for example. And the idea is that the witness intermediary would have limited information about the offence but they would present a preliminary report and consult with the police interviewer and that they would be the witness intermediary would be present for the JERT interview. Now again I have not seen that in practice yet. The process in the district court which I have touched upon is that the court appoints a witness intermediary and that will happen at the court will order one at that first call over and reports will be directed to be sent to the court. The DPP then liaises with victim services and the witness intermediary and the witness intermediary prepares an assessment report for the court. The witness intermediary may attend court to familiarise themselves with the support persons and police and the defence may also consult with the witness intermediary. Then there's a ground rules hearing or mention where the witness intermediary reads out the recommendations under oath or affirmation and then they go to the court to sit with the remote court to sit with the witness. In practice, sometimes there's a large gap between the pre-recorded evidence and the balance of trial, and other times there isn't such a large gap. My most recent matter, we did our pre-records in July, mid-July 2020, and our balance of trial with the jury commenced on the 3rd of August 2020. And from my point of view, the minimal gap was excellent because we didn't have the same situation as I had in the past where police or prosecution then go and gather more evidence or try to fix some problems that arose in the cross-examination. It did mean that all that editing had to be done very quickly, but that's not a problem if both sides are cooperating. So the recommended reading, go to the practice note on the district court, that's for Sydney matters. Go to the Criminal Procedure Act, Part 29 of Schedule 2. By all means, download a copy of the Witness Intermediary Procedural Guidance Manual on the Victim Services website. And there's also a UK website called theadvocatesgateway.org because this has been in the UK for many years. I'd just like to draw your attention to a case because with these matters, the case of NZ, a 2005 New South Wales CCA matter, because in practice, when the videos or DVDs of the evidence of the pre-recording is played to the jury.
if the jury want to re-watch that, they need to come back into court to re-watch it because the video or the DVD is not going to the jury room. It is treated differently to the other exhibits or it's treated differently to other evidence, I should say. So the case of NZ, the New South Wales CCA case of NZ in 2005, is at paragraph 2000, sorry, 210, there's a preferred procedure that the CCA said is the preferred practice. They're keen to say that they're, they're not laying down a rule, but this is their preferred practice and their view as to the procedure to be followed generally. The videotape or the DVD of evidence of a Crown witness should not become an exhibit and therefore should not be sent with the other exhibits to the jury room on retirement. Any transcript given to the jury should be recovered from the jury after the evidence of the witness has been completed. And it's for the discretion of the trial judge as to how a jury requests to be reminded of the evidence in chief should the witness uh, should be addressed. So if the jury write a note and ask to have further a further viewing of the DVD of either the JERT interview at the police station, which is the evidence in chief, or a further viewing of the cross-examination which was done in the pre-record. What happened in my recent trial is we had to all come back into court. They were re-handed the transcript, which is the aid memoir. We had to re-watch the DVD. Then they handed back the transcripts and then they went back out to retire. The preferred procedure of the case of NZ is it would be inappropriate for the judge to question the, the jury as to the purpose for which they wish to have the tape replayed. And if the tape is to be replayed or the transcript of the tape provided to the jury, the judge should caution the jury about their approach to that evidence when the tape is being replayed to them or the transcript of the tape returned to them in terms to the effect that because they are hearing the evidence in chief of the complainant repeated a second time and well after all the other evidence, they should guard against the risk of giving it disproportionate weight simply for that reason and should bear well in mind the other evidence of the case. The judge should consider whether the jury should be reminded of any other evidence, for, the, for example, the cross-examination of the witness at the time that the tape of the jert is replayed or sent to the jury room if that step is to be considered appropriate. So have a look at that case because if you do get a question by the jury to have a copy of the DVD or to have it played to them again, you need to question whether you want the judge to make some certain further directions about what weight to give to certain evidence and not to give it more weight because they're rehearing it. And so that's the case of the Crown and NZ. 
2005 New South Wales CCA 278 and it's towards the end of the judgment. So in practice these matters are done very differently to adult sexual assault trials for example or any other trial. They're really conducted in two parts with not, no jury and then balance of the case in front of a jury. And the biggest difference though is the introduction of the witness intermediary. I have a PowerPoint presentation which I'm happy to make available and it is on the intranet in fact. And of course the practice note is available on the district court website and the procedural guidance manual which is worth having a look at um, for witness intermediaries is available on Victim Services website. If you have any questions you can email me or give me a call and I'm happy to answer any questions. Sometimes it's hard to read the chunks of the legislation but not to know how it works in practice and it's only really seeing it and hearing it in practice that you become more familiar with the protocols and procedures because as the scheme has gone on from the beginning to now things have changed it has been expanded things have been altered and changed so again uh, thank you for listening and I hope that this has been informative and if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Thank you.